chapter 10, Spiritual Principles that Accelerate Growth. Uh, these are some of the spiritual truths I've learned over the years that have helped me grow spiritually. Number one, and this one is super important, living in the present moment. All spiritual paths talk about this. Even a cursory exam examination of this will show you that it's true. The only thing that's real is the present moment. The past is dead, it's gone, and the future hasn't happened yet. So all you have really of reality is what is true now. The only time that's real is now. What we call time is actually a, success, a succession of now moments. And if we can remember to stay in the now, we will live in reality. This is harder than it looks. For one thing, the mind is very quick and automatically labels everything you hear, smell, taste, touch, see in a nanosecond. So what you then see is a concept about the thing you're sensing based on the past. So great practice is just to see things as they are without labeling. Now, this is hard to do but you can get better at it the more you do it. The goal is to apprehend whatever's in one's perceptual field without labeling it as a thing, good, bad, like it, don't like it, important, unimportant. Even linguistic naming is a type of labeling. By calling something a table, you think you know what it is. You literally fix it in stone. <laughs> so to speak, so the mystery of it is lost. Through our minds, we think we know what we're looking at, and we lose any possibility of seeing it anew. This is very damaging when it comes to close friends or family. We think we know who they are, yet in the next moment, they're completely new. The Ashaya tradition of ascension, which I practice daily, has a lot to say about this. Space and time are the two concepts that we use to relate to the world. They give us a framework that we use to create a picture that makes at least apparent sense to us in our efforts to navigate in life. Our sense of space is limited because our identity is firmly locked into our physical body. That's the space we seem to occupy and that's the space we think defines who we are. That's the point of reference we use when we move in the world quite blind to anything of a more subtle nature. This time, the time we relate to is most always either the past or the future. Sudden glimpses of the present are powerful, but they're more like peaks instead of stable experiences. Our thoughts seem to be elsewhere and not quite in the now. To be truly present requires that we experience the truth of who we are, and that can only be experienced in the here and now. For the truth, there is no time or place as it exists everywhere in all times. The truth of God is beyond our concepts of space and time and transcends them instantly. 
<clears throat> if one has a suitable vehicle to gain that experience, they can gradually open up to experience the real here and now of the divine presence. Ascension attitudes have the power to bring this about, and that they do it every time we choose to use them. They instantly cut through the chatter of the mind and reach for the stillness of God. Our surface awareness does not necessarily recognize it, especially in the beginning, but it happens regardless. The ascension attitudes are thoughts born in the here and now, and they lead us back to reality. The more our mind is saturated by them, the more our active lives are the focus of ascension, the more we experience the unbounded nature of our own consciousness. Consciousness unbounded means consciousness not by limited by surface concepts of space and time that we often hold on to for dear life. I've also found the avatar exercise of not labeling very powerful. It allows you to see how habitual the practice of instantly labeling is to us. Why is this so? Because the ego's need to predict and control its reality. If we can just innocently look at something without labeling it with a name, a preference, I like it, I don't like it, we can see it new. Here's the possibility of really seeing something as it truly is. I recommend you try this. I think you'll find it a very interesting experience. The second spiritual principle to accelerate growth is surrender. Surrender comes when you no longer ask, why is this happening to me? Acceptance of the unacceptable is the greatest source of grace in our world. This is by Eckhart Tolle. The ego says, well, I don't want to accept the unacceptable. But through the law of attraction, you draw the experiences to you that you ask for. So it makes good common sense to accept what comes to us. This does not mean we do nothing with what comes, but the first step to it is to accept it because it is here. The ego wants to deny reality when it doesn't fit its model of that as good. Once we accept that this is here because we drew it here, then we can change things. Most spiritual seekers are told they need to surrender to divine will. Well, what does this mean exactly? My take on surrender is that I need to listen to the still small voice and disregard the voice of the ego, which is much larger, then give up my agenda of what I think should happen and see where I am led. This is the same thing as sensing the rhythms and pulsations of life and consciously aligning myself with that. I can truthfully tell you that every time I've done this in the last 30 years, it has worked out beautifully. Our arrival in Viroqua, a town of 4,500 people in the driftless region of southwestern Wisconsin, is just an example. Here's how we got to this place. I was a tenured full professor with an endowed chair teaching at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. One morning, I literally woke up and knew I had to quit my job and prepare for what was next in my life. Of course, some of my colleagues thought I was nuts or in the grip of a midlife, 
crisis, but I've come to trust these so-called hunches. So I went and quit my tenured job, having no idea of where we were going or what I was going to do when we got there. I was 54 years old, full of energy and not the least bit interested in retirement. So what showed up were a series of three seemingly unrelated incidents that showed us where we needed to go. First, we got a call from some old friends. The wife of the couple was a Tibetan Buddhist devotee, and they invited us to go to Spring Green, Wisconsin, to visit a Tibetan Dharma center. We said, sure, and went. When we got there, we stood on the deck of a new acquaintance's home, and suddenly all three of us, my wife, me, and our daughter, Caitlin, said, we could live here. It surprised us, and we laughed out loud. Then, three weeks later, another set of friends in Chicago said, we are you're interested in southwestern Wisconsin. My brother is selling his home near Spring Green, an hour's away, drive away from Viroqua. Why not drive up and look at it? So we did. The home wasn't right, but we noticed those green hills again thought maybe. The coup de grace was applied about a month later when an old friend I'd been in business with in Chicago in the early 80s called. He's someone who I hadn't talked to for a decade and said, why don't you guys come up here for a visit? My wife and I just bought a farm with 160 acres for 90,000 bucks near Richland Center, a 45-minute drive from Viroqua. We flew up in February 1995, bought a small farm, and we moved up in April of that year. Neither one of us had a job, but we knew we were going to make this place our home. This is how you trust the rhythms of life. You just keep looking for synchronicities and guidance and you will get it. The next spiritual principle is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very powerful tool for transformation. This is not the normal view of, uh, of uh, forgiveness. Major religions say we should forgive someone that harms us or hurts us anyway. As Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But we've learned through the Course in Miracles and through ancient philosophies of Hinduism and Buddhism that the world is a waking dream or an illusion. It means that the one true state is oneness and all the separate appearing things in your world are just a manifestation or projection of your belief in separateness. You will recall that in the so-called fall from grace, we accepted a belief that we were separate from God and from each other. So we are literally having a waking dream based on that assumption. Now, the Course in Miracles goes a step further. It says we have loads of unconscious guilt from separating from God, our true home. This guilt plays out in our projections of evil people out there. These people aren't real, but they appear to be real as manifestations of our unconscious guilt. There is no such thing as sin, and none of us are really guilty at all because we cannot separate from God. We just think we did. So in truth, there's really nothing to be guilty about. We have harmed no one in actuality, nor have they harmed us. However, our religions and our deep belief in sin convince us we are very guilty and must fear an angry, vengeful God. If you step back and think a little bit, it's easy to see that a loving God 
and a vengeful, spiteful God cannot be the same being. I choose to believe in a loving God who wants the best for me and since the whole is contained in me for all beings. So to forgive, then to tell, we have to tell the truth that no one out there is real and that when something appears to happen to me that I judge is bad, I must remember that some unconscious guilt of mine is coming up to be forgiven. Here's how you do it, according to The Course in Miracles. When something happens with a person that appears hurtful to you, simply say this to yourself. You are Christ, pure and innocent. All is forgiven and released. If you can stay conscious long enough to escape the snares of the ego, which wants us to be afraid and full of sin, you can dissolve some of this unconscious guilt you've been carrying around for millennia. Whatever happens in your experience, just try to remember that you are watching a dream that appears real. The only difference between this dream and the nighttime version is the one. this one seems to obey the laws of third dimensional reality, gravity, apparent death and destruction. But it's a dream nonetheless. By not buying into the ego's tricks to convince you that you are sinful and wicked, and therefore deserving of punishment, you slowly but surely relieve yourself of the weight of that guilt of separation. Try this. You will find it quite liberating. A precursor to stillness is silence. Excuse me. Sorry, I jumped ahead. The next one is thankfulness. This is the next spiritual principle. It is a really good idea to be thankful all the time for everything that comes. What did Jesus say? Be thankful for all things. He wasn't kidding. He didn't say, be thankful for things you like and be resentful for things you don't like. <laughs> he didn't say that. So by being thankful for all things you receive, you are acknowledging that you are the creator of your world. If something showed up, you literally asked for it. Now, I'm not saying you consciously asked for it. You probably asked for it with your unconscious beliefs and values, but you asked for it nonetheless. Thankfulness is a very powerful tool for affirming your life. I give every thanks every day for my family, my friends, my health, my work, for being able to write this book, for all things. This principle is a very powerful one and one that negates the victim stance. The victim is trying to blame others for his or her circumstance for the predicament they find themselves in instead of giving thanks. What they don't consciously realize is that by giving thanks for all things, they open the possibility that they might learn something from what showed up in their lives. With blame, there's no possibility of learning anything. If something is always someone else's fault, then you live life totally at the effect of your circumstance and never in the role of the creator of your life. Thankfulness or gratitude is a very important step in spiritual development and to true success in life. It helps to focus attention away from the demands of the ego and place it outside our selfish desires. Okay, the next one is called stillness. Eckhart Tolle wrote a book called Stillness Speaks, and this is from his book. Stillness is your essential nature. 
When you lose touch with your inner stillness, you lose touch with yourself. If you lose touch with yourself, you lose yourself in the world. Very good. In order to hear the still small voice of infinite intelligence, we must be still. This is the core purpose of meditation, to still the monkey mind of the ego. As I mentioned earlier, we think an average of 50,000 thoughts a day, many of them repetitive. No wonder we're stressed out all the time. Many of these thoughts are not ours. They didn't originate in our ego consciousness, but actually float in through our connection with the mass consciousness. We are literally inundated with thoughts, and many of them are contradictory and opposing to each other. That's why one pointed focus or intention is so important for conscious creation. Without focus, the creative power we all possess is dissipate, excuse me, with endless and random thoughts. A precursor to stillness is silence. Silence allows the stillness to come upon us. If we're busy dealing with the so-called external reality, then there are no possibilities for internal silence. Silence is the material expression of stillness. Listening to silence awakens the dimension of stillness within yourself, because it's only through stillness that you can be aware of silence. So, if we don't spend time each day in silence and stillness, it's very likely that the world will seemingly grab our attention and off we go in egocentric circles of the mind. So my sense is that any real spiritual growth we experience must come from the realms of stillness and silence. Another spiritual principle is the law of attraction. It's as simple as this, like attracts like. The universe is all vibration. All physical substance, gases, liquids are vibrating at different frequencies. Everything vibrates at some frequency, including thoughts and feelings. And like frequencies attract and different frequencies repel. The so-called evil that comes at us has been attracted to us by the law of attraction because we have negative thoughts that have attracted things and experiences vibrating at a similar frequency. We have sent out negative energy and it has literally returned to us. Notice what is happening in the world right now, especially amplified by social media. This is what's going on. Is there's so much negativity, it's attracting more and more negativity to the, us who are operating from these frequencies. So if you're on a smartphone, I urge you to get off that damn thing because it is not helping you. Wealthy, happy people have maintained positive vibrations and positive thoughts. This has attracted positive experiences. Individuals with similar positive attitudes and positive conditions into their lives. If you maintain a positive attitude and positive vibrations in your mind, negative people will avoid you because they are repelled by positive light-filled thoughts. Similarly, if you're a negative, fearful person, fear and negativity are lower frequencies than love and happiness, you will attract similar people in your life and you will repel 
positive, optimistic people. Another principle is the law of cause and effect. What we send out comes back to us in the same frequency but amplified. If you send out positive, thankful vibrations, positive vibrations will return. If you send out negative vibrations, negative vibrations and experiences will return. What goes around comes around as the old saying says. All negative actions will return to us in like experiences and circumstances. This is the law of karma in some religions. Before coming into this earth incarnation, we agreed to the life lessons we were to receive in the upcoming lifetime. We go to earth with a design for our life, and to that extent there is predestination. We receive experiences based on the priority lessons to be learned in this embodiment. In other words, we receive things in vibrations based on a reservoir of vibration we have sent out and influenced others in both positive and neg negative ways in past embodiments. However, we can meet our karma, our destiny, and completely to redesign our lives by consciously controlling our vibrations during this lifetime. In this way, we can erase negative karma built in other lifetimes on earth. Another principle is the law of attention. What we pay attention to expands in our awareness. It increases in strength. That which we pay no attention to does not gain in strength for us. This principle applies in both positive and negative directions. The things we worry about will be strengthened. Our greatest fears thus become realities to us. Remember that quote, what you fear will come upon you? If you fear losing your job, you're more likely to lose it. If you fear ill health, you're more likely to become ill. I remember hearing one of my students at DePaul University say, Dr. Banner, the flu is racing through the dorms. And sure enough, they would all get sick with the flu. <laughs> if we fear the loss of a relationship, we will lose or damage that relationship. Okay, the will of God. This is another spiritual principle. The will of God is for good, light, happiness, purity, balance, and loving kindness. Darkness, unhappiness, war, violence, impurity, and cruelty are not the will of God. The vengeful, vindictive God of the Old Testament of the Bible is a projection of the ego-driven human consciousness. God rules the universe by a series of impersonal rules, some of which are aligned, outlined above. Here's some examples. If you are filled with darkness and negative attitudes, then darkness and negativity will be attracted to you. You then respond with anger, and this contributes to the creation of a negative reality in opposition to what God desires for us. If we're cruel, we attract cruel people into our lives, and victims for our expressions of cruelty. If we're fearful, the world will be filled with fearfulness of our own creation. If we're optimistic, thankful, light-filled, and positive, then positive experiences will be attracted to our lives. If we look forward with positive expectations, this will become a reality. We reap what we sow. 
If we want to create a world that we desire, we must control our thoughts. This is extremely important. Also, our feelings are a very powerful driving force for all creation. You must hold a design in its pure form in order for it to manifest. Okay. I used to think I wanted to be rich. But I also hold the thought that rich people always seem to have trouble and money is the root of all ego. <laughs> so if you have these conflicting thoughts, you won't create anything. So concentration and focus are important. All right. Uh, that, I guess, is the end of that chapter. Uh, I now want to end this with a poem and also am ending the book. I think I may do one more chapter on the epilogue. Here's the poem by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though their voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road was full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice that you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save. Okay, stick around for the epilogue.